Well, good morning, and thank you everyone for being here. Uh, a hard copy of this press release is going to be released at a later time after this conference this morning. Uh, thank you specifically, uh, State Representative Dave Stevern, for joining us today uh, for this important news. And I am pleased to report investigators of the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office and specialists of Redgrave Research Forensic Services have confirmed the identity of Ina Jane Doe, an unidentified woman whose remains were discovered 29 years ago in Jefferson County. The identity of that woman is Susan Lund of Clarksville, Tennessee. This had been the thing that bothered me most from day one. Doe cases got the least coverage, even though they were the ones that needed it most. So I filed a fresh batch of Freedom of Information Act or FOIAs on the unidentified dead, the ones whose case numbers I'd been tracking in NamUs and whose nicknames were sent to Google Alerts. Julie Doe, Dennis Doe, Christmas Doe. When I got the very first file, I knew these were the cases I needed to write about above all. There was no one out there advocating for them, no family holding a memorial for Jane Doe 1980, or if there were, it was under a different name. But maybe their attention could be attracted and connected to the unidentified. After all, if you can construct a story with the pieces that death has left behind, someone might recognize the life that preceded them. Welcome listeners, my name is Patricia, or most people call me Patches, and I'm the host of the Morbidly Curious Book Club, a nonfiction-only book club diving into the darker, macabre parts of your library. And today's topic, our February pick, is honestly one of the reasons why I wanted to start the book club in the first place. Cold Cases. Our February book was Lay Them to Rest, On the Road with the Cold Case Investigators Who Identify the Nameless by Laura Norton. Exploring the rapidly evolving techniques scientists are using to break the most notorious cold cases written by the host of the popular true crime podcast, The Fall Line, Laura Norton, and I'm incredibly grateful to be chatting with her today. Over the past six years, Laura has worked tirelessly to cover unsolved murders, unidentified persons, and unexplained disappearances appearances, primarily those involving communities deprioritized by mainstream media or investigators. And after she stumbled across the case of Ina Jane Doe, an unidentified woman whose decapitated head was found tucked in the brush of an Illinois park in 1993, Laura has been more determined than ever to help this victim reclaim her identity so she can finally be laid to rest. She teams up with forensic anthropologist Dr. Amy Michael and an eclectic group of experts to unearth the identity of Ina Jane Doe in real time. Along the way, she deep dives into the methodology and explores the wide array of innovative techniques that experts use to solve these once unsolvable cases, from fingerprinting and forensic artistry to skeletal and dental analysis, investigative genetic genealogy, and beyond. This book was remarkable. Seeing Laura and her team genuinely solve this in real time was absolutely incredible. I cannot recommend this book enough. It was captivating and emotional, informative, 
and just such a good book. Obviously, with this being nonfiction, it's, it is a little hard to avoid spoilers, so I, w- I will just put that out there. But if you would like to hear just a little bit of a breakdown about Ina Jane Doe being Susan Lund, let me tell you just a little bit more. Now, for context, this is Clarksville, Tennessee, and I got this article from ClarksvilleNow.com. If you've driven down College Street towards downtown recently or ventured down the 41A bypass, you may have seen a billboard on the side of the road with a woman's face in large text asking what happened to Susan Lund. These billboards are two of six put up in Clarksville to rally the community for answers, answers that are over 30 years old. So it was Christmas Eve 1992 at 7.30 p.m. when Susan Lund, allegedly three months pregnant, left her home on Harrier Court just off Jack Miller Boulevard on foot to go buy some groceries. And at the time, her four-year-old daughter, Crystal Lund, begged to go with her, but she told her no. Susan was unaware that the grocery store had closed early for Christmas Eve, and she never returned. The next day, Christmas Day, when the kids were opening their presents and Susan was nowhere to be found, Paul Lund, Susan's husband, immediately knew something was wrong, so he called the police to report his wife missing. In about a month later, on January 27, 1993, two girls found the head and partial vertebrae of a woman on the side of the road in Wayne Fitzgerald State Park near Benton, Illinois. And to put it into context, this is about a three-hour drive northwest of Clarksville, Tennessee. Now, the remains of this person were labeled as Ina Jane Doe, and for 29 years, the identity was labeled as unknown. Until... February 2021, when Dr. Amy Michael approached Jefferson County Sheriff's Office in Illinois, stating that they needed to do a re-examination. Now, Dr. Amy Michael was friends with Laura Norton, the author we're chatting with today, and actually grew up in Illinois and grew up hearing about this case. And it was March 6th, we're coming up on the anniversary, 2022, it was confirmed that Ina Jane Doe was Susan Lund. How Susan got there what exactly happened is the next part of this puzzle. Something really strange and baffling about this case, and one of the reasons, or many reasons, I guess, why this went unsolved for so long was the case was actually closed. There's a couple weeks of searching after Susan was deemed a missing person. Clarksville Police Department actually abandoned their search for Susan because they said that there were sightings of her in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. They still had her listed as a missing person, but there were alleged sightings. A couple months went by, Paul alleged that she was kidnapped, but it wasn't until August 13th, 1993, that the case was actually closed. Now, there was a woman in Alabama claiming to be Susan Lund, and to quote, she recently talked with an Alabama state trooper in the town where she now apparently lives. The woman told TBI agent Jeff Puckett that she was the woman reported missing, that's Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, and she apparently did not want to be bothered. Susan's sister, Anne-Marie Miley, said, and she told Clarksville Now, The police went there and decided on their own that that was Susan. My parents decided they wanted to go there and see if it was Susan, and they did, and it wasn't her. And to quote the article, she said that she and her family tried for years to get the case reopened after debunking the woman's false claim. And because this case was closed, this was completely unbeknownst to the people current day trying to solve this. And again, I will continue to say, I really recommend you read this book. 
So let me tell you a little bit more about Laura. So Laura has a really interesting background. She's a writer and former academic with 15 years in the fields of literary fiction, creative nonfiction, and archival and primary research. Her work includes creation, writing, research, and hosting of podcasts, One Strange Thing, and The Fall Line. So her current literary projects include the book that we are discussing today that came out in October of 2023, Lay Them to Rest. And apparently she is currently working on a suspense thriller novel set in the early 2000s and tying together the Appalachian foothills of Georgia, folk magic, and forensic science, which to me sounds perfect, like the Holy Trinity. Other literary publications include fiction, poetry, and creative nonfiction in journalists and anthologies. I wanted to start in like a very materialistic place and talk about the cover of this book, because I love it. Explain to me the process of was this your idea? Did you kind of draw it up for somebody? Okay, so I absolutely did not draw this cover <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> Let's be clear there. So uh, this cover was done by a very talented artist by the name of, I believe, Peter Strain. But let's do check that. That is correct. Peter Strain. Thank goodness. I really did not want to get his name wrong. He's a really talented artist and he does a lot of like fine pencil drawing as well if anyone wants to go to his website. I did have a basic concept for what I wanted when I spoke with my editor, Carrie, and I said, I, I don't want this to look like your average true crime book, was the first thing I said. I don't want crime scene tape. I don't want to see, you know, like garish red and yellow splashed across the cover. I kind of want it to feel like the things that I work on in a lot of ways. I do want to see bone because that's a lot of what Amy and I work on is working with bone. But I want to, in some ways, see what's captured there, which is the beauty and the sadness of working on remains that are found for so, you know, so much later, found after so many years. And I think they really captured that well. Um, Amy did consult on a couple of different drafts of the illustration in terms of bone articulation, size of bones, etc., and went back and forth with that. And then Hachette sort of, you know, just communicated, color do you want this to be? And I wanted it to really stand out on the shelf. Um, that's why it's that sort of beautiful cyan, as my son would say, that's his favorite color. So he says that's cyan. Just wanted it to stand out and not look like other true crime books. Um, I really especially loved, uh, one note we gave Peter at the beginning was, we want woods, we want the sense of traveling through the woods. And I think that beautiful shadow he did mm -hmm. at the bottom with the trees was something really lovely as well. So, I mean, I, I love the cover. That's one of the most consistent comments we get from people who see it for the first time is they think it's beautiful. And I think he did a beautiful job. Your journey with cold cases, uh, you said in a couple different interviews, it's kind of started around the time that you had your son. And I remember you mentioning you wanted to just be really still and listen to something and listen to a podcast. I mean, you've always been interested in cold cases, but this is when kind of serial came around. And I think for a lot of people, Serial is what kind of sparked or ignited this, you know, the, the true crime podcast space in a way. What are some of the cases that have stuck with you? Wanting to be still and forced to be Having still to be. are you're kind right, of, right. you know, yeah. two different ideas there. Um, <laughs> he was born uh, in the middle of 2014. And for a long time, uh, he would just sleep if he was on top of me. So when I wasn't working sometimes to get him to go to sleep or to take a nap, he would have to lay across me. It's just a hot little baby body. And watching Netflix or something was kind of like out, um, you know, of my choices because it made too much noise, you know, anything I wanted to watch. So 
I'd have to listen to something, and you can only listen to music for so long, like you need entertainment. I'd always been an audiobook person, but like I was like gonna just empty out our bank account at that point with Audible. So I had started listening to podcasts. Um, one of my good friends from college had told me about Serial. You know, I was like a, a, a year behind, two years behind maybe at that point. But I started, you know, listening and finding podcasts to listen to. And I had always been someone who was interested in cold cases, mostly because they bothered me. Anything that's left open feels abandoned, unfinished, feels like there's a piece of the puzzle missing, and if that piece clicks in, everything would be solved. That has always been something that I want to kind of come back and worry and be like, if we find this piece, everything will be fine. The irony there, of course, is that through my work, I've learned that that's not true. Even if every single piece clicks in, um, everything's not fine. Um, right. Even if you get all the answers and things are resolved, things are never really over. The pain happened, the trauma happened, and a family never gets all the answers that they wanted. But I had a more simplistic view back then before I started doing this work. A case that I had heard about before, um, having gone to college in North Carolina, was Asia Degree. People sometimes call her Asha Degree. I've heard her family call her Asia Degree, though, um, on the news mm. a good bit. So that's the pronunciation that I tend to use. That's a case that had always really bothered me. Um, she was a little girl who went missing out of Shelby, North Carolina. And, and that's a case that I had checked in on every so often. So I looked for podcasts covering that case, cold missing persons cases in general, just anything that was cold and people were looking for leads, asking for leads. I also listened to things that weren't true crime necessarily. Um, I like to learn things about history as well. But just going back and revisiting things I hadn't thought about for a long time, things I'd seen on Unsolved Mysteries when I was a little kid, watching stuff I wasn't supposed to watch. Um, sure. And that just really kind of reignited my interest, and I started kind of incorporating scraps of information, old newspaper articles into my lessons for my students, something I talk about in my book. And that's just sort of how it all took off. Yeah, I was just recently in Shelby and passed Asia Degrees billboard that is still up. I remember tuning into Serial back in the day as well. I think I'll always hear that piano music. It's like a ghost that mm -hmm. follows me. What do you think or how do you feel Serial did? What, what did it do for the true crime podcast space? It's so funny because I think we spend so much time looking at Serial retrospectively with all we know now about how stories are put together and the impact that Serial had and wrongful convictions and character portrayal and you know, we we do a lot of like, you know, what do they call it in the sports analogy? Monday morning quarterbacking. Is is that right? I, I don't know about sports. You're um, asking the wrong person. <laughs> I think I have I think I have that generally right so we can go with it, you know, <laughs> where like we've critiqued cereal so much. It's really hard to go back and look at the product as it was at the time. You know what I mean? Right. But one thing I think about that's so interesting to me is less about what cereal was, but how the people who were in it felt about it at the time. That's the thing that I go back to the most. I've heard a lot of the people who were interviewed say they didn't know what a podcast was or that they were going to be on a podcast. They thought they were being interviewed for some kind of news article. Um, the medium was new. And I think a lot about the responsibility of letting people understand what they're about to be a part of. And that's the part that sticks with me more 
I guess, than the impact on crime. And the impact on a case is the impact on the people who are part of it because you bring them into it. Because for us as writers or creators, you and I are going to turn off these mics and we're going to go about our days and, and be done. But if we involve a person talking about the worst day of their lives, right, whatever they say, it's it's on there forever and it's out there and it's going to come back to them dozens and dozens of times, hundreds of times. And if it blows up, they may never outlive that. And so I think about the responsibility we have as people that create content to help people really understand, whether it's for a newspaper article or a blog or a book or a podcast, what they're signing up for, especially when we get into new media, you know. And so honestly, like when I think about serial, that's what I think about the most is how this new genre changed the lives of people who maybe didn't know what they were getting into. So what made you step into this field? What made you want to to sit down and start the podcasting process? Oh, well, I mean, I got a grant to uh, teach podcasting. Um, so, you know, I... I always wanted, I'm always looking, or I was always looking. Um, I quit teaching in 2022. I miss the students. That's about it. I don't really, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't do well inside of, you know, tight structures, but I really do love teaching. I'm always looking for new and interesting ways to teach. And I was especially focused in creative nonfiction. Um, narrative podcasting was something I really wanted to teach. I had to learn how to make a podcast to teach podcasting. Otherwise, I would be pretty bad at teaching it. <laughs> So I had to learn how to make a podcast. And so I had been looking at cold cases that didn't get any coverage or couldn't get coverage because there was no research available because most true crime podcasting is ultimately aggregation of material that's already available. And that's not a diss, you know, that's just how people can put things together. They go out and do research. But how do you research something if there's nothing there? Well, you're a trained researcher and someone who can do primary research, which is you generate your own research. You go out there and do it. You do some of the reporting. You collect the data. You know, you do the interviews. You know where to find things other people don't know what where to find, whether it's, you know, land records, how to pull, you know, certain kinds of data, um, who to talk to, how to figure out, you know, where the schools lost the yearbooks in 1974, you know, mm -hmm. whatever it is. If you know how to do all that, then you're able to create that material. And so I ultimately thought it would be the most useful way to use of my time to put together something while I was learning to make a podcast that could actually be of service to the community in some kind of way. And that's how we ended up making the first season of The Fall Line. It wasn't really supposed to go anywhere further than it did. I made it with my very longtime friend, Brooke Hargrove, who is a licensed professional counselor. She did all of the interviews with friends and family in that case and still does to this day because she has the training for that. And we put it together in collaboration with the people who had experienced this long-term missing persons case. So they had input on how they sounded they had input on how they were spoken about the language that was used. They had ultimate approval, and it was just going to be that. But it ended up attracting a lot of attention, which was very strange and unfortunate in some ways, only in that we didn't know what we were doing sound-wise. Very sure. fortunate on every other level except for that one level. That poor season has been remastered to death at this point. You know, we've gotten it as good as it can get. If I could do one thing differently, I would have spent about six months teaching myself better sound editing, but you know live and learn. But that's how we got into it. And then we realized that there was a need 
to do more of that. And we realized that because people began to approach us and ask us to do more of that. Friends and family and eventually law enforcement and experts. And that's how we got started. And, you know, writing, of course, for you isn't completely unknown. You said you had two creative writing degrees? Yeah, yeah. My undergraduate degree and my graduate degree are both in creative writing. That's so cool. And you're, you're already a published author. You were approached to write a book, I believe, in 2020? Somewhere, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've been asked, well, okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> I've been asked to write a book a couple of times. And let me give all of your audience members, I'm going to give you guys all a tip that I should have followed, okay? So when an agent reaches out to you and asks if you have a manuscript, this should be your answer. Yes. Okay. okay. Even if you do not have one. <laughs> all right. Because <laughs> then you should start writing it. Um, but for a long time, I wrote extremely short fiction. I was really into micro fiction. I was into, you know, whatever the terms, you know, the terms changed for a long time. Super short fiction. That's what I liked writing. And I wrote that probably through 2014 or 15. Like, that's what I was into. I was writing stories about, like, terrible people. Mm. <laughs> I was really interested in, like, how can I write about people who are awful, but in small and subtle ways? This sure. is what I want to do. But then I figured, I was like, I'm tired of these terrible people. They're depressing me. And I kind of quit writing about them. But a few times during uh, that period, I had agents reach out and query me to see if they could represent me to write a novel. And I said, no, I don't feel like doing that right now. Don't, don't say that very stupid. You should always say, yes, I do have a novel and I would love to have you represent me. Don't don't make that very dumb decision because you want to write very short stories that are only being published in literary magazines. Noted. <laughs> All right. Terrible, terrible advice. We just done a season on the victims of Samuel Little with almost no focus on Samuel Little himself. This is the serial killer, Samuel Little. We were interested in focusing on the unidentified victims of Samuel Little. Although we mm -hmm. did certainly, of course, talk about his identified victims as well, and primarily in the Southeast, with an eye towards helping to try and identify some of his victims through more media coverage. And actually, um, through the work of my research assistant, Brian Waters, he was actually able to help identify the family of one of the victims. The police had not been able to make that connection yet, at least in Miami. So he was actually able to resolve that aspect of the case. And we didn't know we'd done that. We just put it in the episode, and then a reporter reached out and said, you have found this woman's family? Um, and we said, yeah. And so that was something we were unaware that Miami-Dade didn't have that information. But along when those episodes were coming out, an editor reached out, and I said, sure, but I don't want to write about serial killers. I'm not interested in serial killers at all. If anyone who thinks that they feel like they know a lot about serial killers, I beg you to read <laughs> Enzo Yaksik's book on uh, serial killers in the modern age. He is one of the leading experts on what he calls atypical homicide or abnormal homicide. He's a researcher, and much of what is put out in media about what a serial killer is, what is serial killing, uh, what we think we know is it's all wrong. Um, Interesting. And it's mostly, you know, it's it's because of the media. And it's because a lot of the early studies that were done were just flawed because they were based on people who are the exception, not the rule. Think about it. So they pick Bundy or Kemper, right, or Jeffrey Dahmer. These are not average people who are killers. These were abhorrent exceptions, right? Mm -hmm. You don't pick three or four or five of the most infamous and strangest people and then base your studies on them. They don't make up the mass of people who have committed serial killings in this country. Enzo 
read his book. Um, he's a really, really fascinating scholar. He also does work at uh, the Murder Accountability Project, where they make those really fascinating maps about, you know, where murders happen in our country, where they go unsolved and why. It's a really, really um, amazing website you can look at, and you can kind of look at maps of where things are happening. Um, it's a really good resource. But oh, okay. this particular editor reached out and let me know that she was interested. And I said, well, no, I don't want to write about that, but I would love to write about unidentified persons. Um, this is something I've been working on since 2018. I've been learning from forensic scientists about how to better cover these cases. I've been learning a lot about forensic science. And I wrote a book proposal about that. It went around to a lot of different places and found a home at Hachette. And thus, my book was born. We love that publisher. I love Hachette. Love yeah. Hachette. My editor, Carrie at Hachette, who works in nonfiction and her specialty is true crime, is brilliant, uh, just really brilliant. And it was working with her, like I didn't know it could be so pleasurable to work with an editor, but it was incredibly pleasurable. So at this point, were you familiar with Ina? When the editor initially reached out, you'd say, no, I, I would rather do it on the unidentified. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was totally okay. familiar. So Amy Michael, Dr. Amy Michael and I, we became friends around 2018. We were introduced actually through the Transdo Task Force uh, through the Redgraves is how we were introduced because I was looking to connect with a forensic anthropologist who could really help me with some of the cold cases I was getting, huge files, some really early skeletal analyses because the fields changed so much. And that will just be like reports about bones, basically. The language has changed so much, like the fields advanced. And they were like, hey, we know someone in New Hampshire you might want to talk to. And she and I clicked. We became fast friends. But she and I had a long list of cases that we were really interested in working on. And Ina Jane Doe, the woman formerly known as Ina Jane Doe, was high on that list for a couple of reasons. One was that we knew her case was cold. Her case was in a resource-poor area, which meant that probably everything that could be done had been done, except for things that were going to cost money. And the third reason is that Amy is originally from Illinois, and so she grew up hearing about that case. And we knew that because the art in that case had circulated widely, that if that art was accurate, it was likely that someone who knew her would have already recognized her. So that was more than two reasons. That was about four. But you get my drift. Right, right. One thing that was interesting was, this, I think it was a sister that said, you know, Sue was, and they called her Sue, Sue was married by 18, missing by 25. Remind me, did, did, did Sue have any connection to Ina, Illinois? Or is that just where she was found? Not that we know of. Our suspicion is that Sue's killer was most interested in creating distance and may not have even had one specific location in place. And this is, again, this is not anything official from law enforcement. This is just what we've thought about in the time since. But it's a pretty straight shot from Clarksville to Ina if you're on the highway. And because Sue was dismembered, it's likely that various parts of her, her remains, were left in different places to make her more difficult to identify. There are really only a few reasons that a person is dismembered. One reason is to make them easier to transport, and another reason is to make them harder to identify. In this case, it was probably for both reasons. And the likelihood that she was taken to Ina, Illinois, to me, I mean, sure, her killer may have had a connection there, but when you go up there and you're on the highway... To get into the park, one entrance is this big, long, winding entrance where you really feel like you have to know where it is. But we found that back entrance, it really is just just off the highway. 
you could really see someone taking just a sudden turn saying, oh, this is a wooded area. And then you're right up against that lake, you know. So I could really see someone saying, hey, maybe this lake is a good place. And then taking so little care as to leave her remains laying on the side of this wooded rural road within the state park. Again, we don't have the answers here. You know, we just have supposition. But our best guess is that her killer was probably surprised um, and probably had to quickly dispose of her remains in, in that case, had to dispose of her head and didn't have the time to do the kind of more careful hiding that they would have liked to do. Did they have plans to leave her in the lake? That's a possibility. Had they left more of her remains in the lake that we just don't know about? It's a huge lake. That's a possibility. But to go to the trouble of pulling into a secluded state park to only then leave someone's remains in a spot where they'll be easily seen, it's just not it doesn't make sense. It's conflicting. So because there were regular security patrols in that park, we think that it's likely that maybe the killer was feeling paranoid or they heard a car coming, and that's how it happened. But to our knowledge, no one in her family had any connection to the Ina area. They're from Indiana, so it's not far, far. But they didn't have a connection to that area specifically. We think it's really more about going straight up that road, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that there were other drop points along the way. Mm-hmm. And at one point, you did find an arm, and there were tests done, and you were not able to connect it to, to Susan. The team wasn't able to dis- to decipher exactly who it was? Yeah. So when we were really digging in, when they released Carl uh, Koppelman's updated art for Sue, That was timed pretty carefully, and it was timed while the DNA was still processing. And the hope was that that would stir up people in Ina and also in Clarksville to have some memories, right, to get to talking and thinking. And it did exactly what it did, right, what we needed it to do. So I spent a couple of days just digging through social media comments and newspaper comments because that... As a researcher, I think sometimes people forget that you need to look at what the locals are saying, but you need to look at what the locals are saying. And we found a link to an archived article um, where a reporter said, you know, I wrote an article, you know, in 2005 about this woman's arm that had been discovered in Indiana. And at first you're like, okay, Indiana, but it was actually a big crime lab that's right on the state line, uh, very close to Illinois, where they were having multi-state folks come in and bring in things for testing, um, not just from Indiana, from Illinois as well. And the issue was, was that the provenance of these remains were unclear because they'd lost the paperwork at some point. So they didn't know who had brought in this woman's remains, this arm. And they did know that the arm was brought in in the early 90s, right? So somewhere between 1992 and 1993, which fell directly into our time frame for Sue. The, in the article, someone actually mentions uh, they knew that a redheaded woman had been found, but that her case had been solved. And of course, Sue's case had not been solved at that point. Mm-hmm. But I was pretty sure that they had mixed it up with another woman, Lynn Matcham Thomas, whose case had been solved because she was found in another state park not far away, not long after Sue. You can see very easily how someone could get that mixed up, right? 
Two right. women found not too far apart. Lynn Matcham Thomas, um, another terrible case. She was beheaded and only her torso was found. So these are highly violent cases in a pretty quiet area. People, you know, would connect them. But the arm uh, had been in formalin, which is a version of formaldehyde, with, if I'm correct, with some water mixed in. Don't yeah. quote me on that one. I had to look that up when I was double-checking it. I had to I'm talk pretty to sure scientist. that's what you said in the book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I said that, it's correct, because I had to call the scientists <laughs> and ask them. And what that does is absolutely destroy DNA. It just yeah, destroys that's weird. it. And, you know, one lab tried and failed. And so we went back to our friends at Estrella who were absolutely, uh, you know, state of the art, one of the best labs, not only in the country, but in the world. And they were actually able to finally, you know, get some DNA and compare it to Sue. But because the DNA was so degraded, they could only rule Sue out. They weren't able to get a full, unique profile for the victim herself. There are some options out there. There's some people doing some really fascinating work right now with ancient DNA based on, like, you know, what they've done for Paleolithic stuff. But the cost would be astronomical at this point. So sometimes what we have to do in these situations is just kind of wait, you know, a couple of years to see how science develops. But obviously, we want to identify that victim. And also, Sue's sisters and her daughter really want to find the rest of her remains. Oh, of course. Of course. Um because they were finally able to get her cremains not that long ago. Her sister Anne's working on a memorial she's been building that she's got permission to put in the park. Um, and they feel at rest on those items, but they want to know what happened to the rest of her, you know? And we don't have those answers yet. We've been looking, but so far. Something incredibly, equally infuriating and just strange is the fact that Susan's was a missing person. There were searches, there were people trying to find her, but the case was closed because somebody had claimed to see her or be her. Was it in Alabama? Yeah. Is that what I, is that what I remember? Uh, what? It what? was extremely like, strange. Actually, I can't wrap my head around that. <laughs> so there were several claim sightings, uh, some in Kentucky first, but then the strangest thing was that a woman uh, in Alabama called the TBI and called uh, up to uh, Clarksville and said that they were Sue. And to my understanding, uh, this is the way that we were able to understand it based on newspaper clippings. We've never been we've never been given access to the Clarksville files. They've closed that case. They will not reopen it. But they did transfer them up to uh, Jefferson County, so hmm. they do okay. have the files in Jefferson County is actively pursuing Sue's case. So they do at least have those. But a woman from Alabama claimed to be Sue. Once a TBI agent, and that's the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, went down there after an Alabama state trooper had spoken to this woman, they for some reason seemed to believe the story was true. I don't know why. Perhaps this woman had information that they believed that only Sue could have. You know, I just don't have enough information to guess as to why they believe that. We do know that Sue's parents traveled down to Alabama. And what her sisters just aren't sure on, because unfortunately their parents have passed away, is whether they were able to actually see this woman or only speak to her on the phone. But they were left feeling certain it was not Sue. And of course, they were proven correct. But despite their protestations, the case was closed. And as to why this woman did this, 
We have no idea. One thing that a lot of people have pointed out to us is that there is a military base in Alabama. Could it be someone, you know, she did, you know, she was a military wife. There were, you know, they were living off base, but very close, you know, up in uh, Tennessee. But could it be someone that had some connection, you know, wanted to play a prank on her family because of that? But we just don't know. I mean, that's a reach. You know, we don't have any information to back that up. We just don't know why this happened. Speaking of reaches, one thing that I thought was interesting in this book is you talking about how it kind of feels strange to immediately point when you when you find remains like this, immediately start pointing at serial killers, because there's really no way to determine who exactly did this. And I think it's because this was such a violent, almost meticulous crime. You do wonder, was this the work of a serial killer? But there's really no way to point on that. And you never know if the serial killer that accused is actually going to be telling the truth. Yeah. I mean, I think for the general public, the general public goes to serial killers for a couple of reasons. One, I think, is saturation. I think that we've been taught that serial killers are much more common than they actually are. Serial killing is vanishingly rare. Even in what's called the quote-unquote golden age of serial killing, Mm -hmm. um, it was still vanishingly rare. The vast majority of killings are committed by people that know us. It's, you know, highly unusual for someone to have been murdered by a serial killer, even more so from the 90s on, you know. But, But... Because we have that exposure, that's something our minds jump to. Second, I think from a really good faith place, people want to help. And what they can do is research online. And you can't just research a person who doesn't have any digital footprint. So what you can research are, you know, famous killings in an area. And who are those going to be tied to? People who have, you know, killed more than one person normally. Because if someone's only killed one person, it's usually going to be someone they know, a wife, a husband, you know, a boss, something like that. And they're going to, you know, have gone to prison for that. So people are going to try and tie Sue into the redhead murders. You know what I mean? That We get mm-hmm. that a lot. People are going to try and see, you know, okay, well, who else was operating at this time? And I think it's a good faith effort to help. And I really appreciate that. And, you know, and you can't, of course, rule anything out. So... The few people who could possibly, you know, fall into um, those parameters, of course, we like, you know, had a sort of like, you know, back end list for that. But it's just unlikely, you know. Sure. It's it tends to be unlikely. And like I mentioned before, I mean, dismembering someone, people tend to think about that as an ultra violent act. It's disgusting and horrible. It's a violation of a person. It's it's awful. But it's something people do often out of utility and not depravity. It's something that I'm, I really want to try and get across mm-hmm. because they are trying to cover up something they did, not because they enjoy it. And speaking of how people want to help, I did want to touch on sleuthing. Yeah. Do you feel the online sleuthing community is hurtful or helpful? I think we can't really be so binary about it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it's definitely it, case by case. Is it one or the other? I mean, and also like, you know, I mean, Todd Matthews, um, my friend who recently died, he was the first online sleuth. Yeah, I didn't know he first, died. Yeah, he passed away um, about four or five weeks ago. Um, oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, he passed away. It was... 
unexpected. And his uh, podcast actually was just coming out. I think they've actually gone ahead and released the first episode. I just saw his wife post about it, I think, under his account. I think it's at least out on Spotify, and I would really encourage your listeners, if they're going yeah. to release it, to listen to it, because he was so excited about this project. Yeah, absolutely. What did you say it was called? I'll put it in the notes uh, below, the description below. Called Hello, John Doe. He was a wonderful, wonderful colleague and man. He's the first digital age sleuth citizen detective. He was a really young father with a high school degree who was working at a plant. I want, I want to say it was a sheet metal plant, he told me. But he, you know, in his spare time, solved an unidentified person's case. He identified a Jane Doe who was known as Tent Girl um, mm-hmm. with nothing but 90s internet. Wow. You know, and he went on to help found NamUs and the Doe Network and to, you know, help with legislation in Tennessee. Um, and he taught me a lot of things and connected me with so many experts and not just me. He was generous with his time with hundreds of people. He taught me so much about dentals and the importance of dentals. He taught me a lot of connecting with odontologists. He was an incredibly intelligent uh, and responsible man. He was also a citizen sleuth, you know? So we have that. And one thing Todd didn't do was center himself. One thing that Todd did was Todd focused on facts, So uh, another person I come to is Mel Jetterberg. She's another friend of mine. She's become an advocate for the Finley Creek Jane Doe in uh, Oregon, I think. But don't don't get me, guys, if it's Washington. Um, (laughs) I haven't been out that way before. So except to Seattle for a conference and I couldn't leave Seattle. So I didn't get to see anything good. I want to I think it's or I'm pretty sure it's Oregon. But, you know, don't don't get me if it's not because I'll have corrected, but corrected it by the time you hear the fall line episode on that. (laughs) But she was just from a small town and had heard about unidentified persons, had a criminal justice degree and a library degree and knew she was good at research and wanted to help and devoted a lot of time and effort to it, to putting together good, comprehensive research to be helpful. Um, And she's done a lot to help. To me, that seems like a positive thing to do. I think where we fall into trouble is where we forget that there's real people involved. Sure. You can look at the negative impact conspiracy theories have had on people like Julie Murray, um, the sister of Maura Murray. She's had to deal with people accusing her of being her sister in disguise, you know? Julie Murray is also one of the nicest people I have ever met yeah gosh she's the best she's nice but she's also tough and the thing is is like it would probably be nice for her to not have to be quite so tough you know what i mean it would probably be nice to be able to not have to be that tough sometimes it would probably be nice for the delphi families to be able to take a break It'd probably be nice for a lot of the families I work with, like the Millbrook twins' sister. Mm -hmm. Or it'd be nice for the families of Monica and Michael Bennett or Shakimia Pate's families to not get messages in the middle of the night from people saying, I found your family members or from psychics or from people who are accusing them of hiding information or lying, you know, or, you know, if they don't want to talk to some stranger about the most painful thing in their lives, you know, uh, someone going on Reddit and saying something mean about them, whatever it is, you know what I mean? So I think that it can be incredibly positive for people to put their time and energy into helping. I think where it becomes negative is where you begin to center your wants and needs in a case 
above the needs of the case itself. I think that's was kind of my rule of thumb is are you helping and who are you helping and how are you defining helping? Who are you doing this for? Yeah, who are you doing it for? Are you doing it because it gives you a kind of high to do it? If you don't get any credit for what you did, are you going to be okay with that? Mm, and if point. the answer is no, <laughs> then maybe you're not actually doing it to help the case. You know, it's a checks and balances thing, I think. Within the research process of this book, you obviously go over a plethora of different things in the forensic world. You know, d not even just discussing dose, but forensics and forensic anthropology and skeletal analysis and odontology. I didn't even know what that word meant until a week ago. Reconstruction art, genetic genealogy and more. What do you think was the hardest part about writing this book and having to, I mean, what are these categories was completely new information to you? Did you have a, an idea, a general idea of all of these? Or what, what have you learned along the way? I had a pretty good handle on some of these, a strong handle on some of these, a so-so handle on some of these. Mm -hmm. The thing I had the hardest time with was what happens in the lab. I flunked science multiple times. My senior year of college, he just gave me a C to let me pass an undergrad <laughs> lab science because he said, look, you're trying. You're not you're you're going to major in creative writing. So you just go on. Um, so when I was at Estrella, uh, like, you know, and like we were recording. Right. So I got everything they said down and like watched them for hours. Like we shortened that up a lot, but I was there forever. And I still had to go over everything that they did uh, with Christina and Kelly, like on Zoom, like five, six, seven times until I got the process right to explain what they did, because it was so difficult for me to understand what they were doing. I was like, so Aleutian is and they're like, no. No, no, no. Back up. I'm saying what you're saying. And they're like, you are, but you're you're not. Um, you're not. So, like, I, I understand. And when it comes to genealogy, I have a pretty good handle on it. Now, watching the Redgraves do it makes my head spin really bad mm -hmm. because they are able, they multitask and they talk and type at the same time while doing the genealogy. And I can only do one thing at one time, but I have a handle on it. Um, my strongest areas are forensic anthropology and forensic art, um, and have a pretty good handle on teeth now, but whew, the lab it's the lab science, for sure. Yeah. And they're also night owls, which is not your cup of tea No, I, I need my nine hours, man. I'm trying to stay young. One thing I love, too, is your mentioning of the frog with teeth that was in the oh office. Oh, my God. It had, that, that thing had, <laughs> it had, when I say teeth, I don't mean, like, fuzzy little teeth, right? No, no, no. You mean, like, I was waiting for a picture in the middle of this book of this frog, because what I'm picturing is creepy, and it might be accurate. So I don't know why I didn't take a picture of the it's probably because I was sometimes I was loaded down with so much recording gear. That's true. That's true. That like I wish I was strapped down like I was in a war zone with recording gear <laughs> and everything else. I don't know what I was doing. But yeah, he, th this poor frog had like a full <laughs> set of dentures in his mouth. And I was uh, horrified. Um, I don't know what child would find that. Yeah, I was about to say that this man, though, this dentist. So pleasant and kind that I didn't want to make him feel bad about his frog. So I was just, you know, I was like, I'm not gonna, not gonna mention that your frog, I'm gonna be up for four nights thinking about this horror mm -hmm. show of a frog, man. I think I would be terrified as a kid. I mean, I was already terrified to go to the dentist as it is. Amy loved it, but you know, she has questionable taste, so. Well, I love Amy. I would love to one day meet Amy and just, you know, praise her because she's she just sounds like an amazing person. Oh, her mom loved it. 
<laughs> good. <laughs> good. Well, I, I learned a lot reading this book. I mean, I've always been fascinated. I took one forensics class in high school. What stood out the most, though, that I really had no idea about was page 66. You're talking about how you said, which I love, time really is written on our bones in its own fashion. And we're talking about radiocarbon in the environment. This is, I mean, this might be common knowledge to everybody, but to me, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What? Before the nuclear age, the amount of radiocarbon in the environment varied little in the span of a century. And, you know, in contrast from 1955 to 1963, atmospheric radiocarbon levels almost doubled. And you could, a forensic anthropologist could tell from the bones of a person was buried post-1950 when that artificial radiocarbon raised or was found and there was a level of radiocarbon. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's the testing. It's, um, you know, when people talk about lead. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Like when people talk about, you know, that's like kind of a meme now talking about lead, right? Yeah, the lead but stare you, or something. Yeah, the lead stare and things like that. But when we talk about the nuclear, when we talk about People will get on me when I say nuclear wrong. I always, Mara's always like, our producer's always like, make sure you say it right. People are going to write a note in and say that you it's, said it wrong. It's, it's like marbles in your mouth, though. I know. But, you know, when we think about, I only bring up lead because when we think about, like, how things settle into us, right? And how you can, you know, we, we make the jokes about the various generations, right? Mm-hmm, and their leads mm-hmm. and their microplastics and whatever the hell's in my son. I don't know. We'll find out <laughs> soon. <laughs> You know, what is what's in Gen Alpha? What are they full of? Roblox, but something else, I'm sure. Sure. Um, but, you know, we think about that kind of testing that's in the bone. I mean, what will we find out later? You know what I mean? But, yeah, that radiocarbon blasting in terms of, like, you know, what's changed in our environment was really fascinating for me to learn, too, because I learned that from working with Amy. I didn't know either. And just, you know, I mean, of course, they can't tell just from looking at your bones. But when they do that testing, they can really tell, OK, this is a historic case. You know, this is pre-1950. Or this is post-1950. That really gives them a basic marker to let them know kind of like where we are in time. And it makes me think, you know, this is uh, scientists listening, don't come at me, because this just makes me muse. I start to think about all those other things um, in our environment and kind of like, you know, how are they being written on our bones right now? And what will tests show later? And how will future anthropologists, you know, use those as markers as well? That's where I was getting at with the other stuff, you know? Isn't it interesting that people live totally normal lives and we're over here thinking about stuff like that? I mean, I walk around thinking I have a skeleton inside of me a lot, you know? Yeah, what is that? Probably Uh, Amy asking what my bones look like that might oh my be god part i of loved it. that part exactly how it happened i made a note in my notes app when she said it because i was <laughs> like because you know i recorded a lot of our conversations but some things i didn't you know because we were just hanging out and if you tape your friends all the time they don't want to hang out with you afterward mm-hmm. strangely but yeah <laughs> we're the weirdos i uh, would just write down things she would say sometimes and her saying that she wished she could see my bones um i felt like in some friendships um, that would be considered rude, but in ours, it was just kind of par for the course. <laughs> yeah, so. that makes sense. That's yeah. that's great. Well, speaking of DNA, I guess we were talking about it earlier. Something I am so guilty of saying, because we are seeing a rise in cold cases being solved because of you know genetics, DNA, uh, science expanding by the day, our ability to test stuff is growing astronomically. And we see these cold cases and we see that we have hair, we've got fingerprints, we've got their teeth. Well, hell, just run the DNA. That is thrown around all the time. And I'm guilty of saying that too. But after reading this book, (laughs) I've learned 
that I need to that I need to stop for a second and understand that that is definitely not as easy as it sounds. Um, and, you know, you mentioned in the, the prologue, you're talking about Joseph D'Angelo and that being the boy in the box was just solved recently. So there are ways to do it, but it's so complex. And now we have rapid DNA, but I wanted to focus also on the genetic genealogy and you also talked about ancestral input and there's so much to go i'm asking like three questions at once i think i got i think i got what you want to know so there's kind of like it folds in on itself right the first thing and if people have read the book they know this is that all dna is not the same there's two different kinds of basic dna tests that are done and so when people say okay well there's dna and we've got the dna it's in codis right that's that's str dna right mm-hmm. and that's a kind of dna that's super useful like i don't want to underplay how useful that dna is most cases that we are solved by dna are solved by that kind of dna but that solves like it's close familial relations only right your first cousin's not going to be a hit but, you know, that's the kind of thing where if the DNA is in CODIS, you know, it, it will pop up, right? Like, so if there is a missing person and they're able to get that person's DNA, let's say there's, you know, they're able to get a sample from a toothbrush, a hairbrush, or a close relative, mother, father, sister, gives a sample. It's in CODIS. They're able to test um, an unidentified person and they're able to ID them that way, Right. Or that person may already have DNA in the system um, because of having committed a crime from having that kind of testing done. Great. But you can't take that DNA out and then use it for forensic genetic genealogy. That's where people get messed up. It's a totally different kind of sample that has to be used, which is SNP DNA, because it includes more of... It's it's like a full think about this like a full spectrum vitamin think about it that way okay. right it's like you know you can think about it as like a you know taking vitamin A or a full spectrum vitamin kind of like mm. that okay and so you have to go back in get a totally new sample from the hair the bone the tooth whatever and then develop this SNP DNA so one can't be used in place of the other and sometimes uh oh they took that sample back in 1990, right? They're like, great, we got the DNA, and they destroyed all the evidence. It's not there anymore. You can't take that old DNA and use it for the new thing. It can't be done. Sometimes they say, okay, DNA is available. Well, Todd Matthews taught me this. That doesn't mean they've actually gotten the sample. They mean it's theoretically available sometimes. That means there's a person available to be exhumed, for instance. Okay. Um, that means there are samples that haven't been run yet. Right. That means that it could be available. It also means that maybe they fully run everything. Right. And they have it ready to go. But you can't always assume it's just there. So when people say, we'll do the, you know, forensic investigative genetic genealogy. okay, so let's say you do have a tooth or you do have bone or you do have hair and you want to run the forensic investigative genetic genealogy. That is not cheap because first you have to develop the SNP sample and you have to get that and that's going to cost money thousands more dollars um the budgets for this kind of stuff they're just not there right. oftentimes law enforcement are having to apply for grants to pay for this because these are cold cases usually you know you're not doing forensic investigative gene- genealogy in a fresh case because normally i mean they they will occasionally if it's very high profile so the idaho murders would be an example mm-hmm. right but normally you're trying to solve it by other means first because most cases are not solved this way. They're solved much more quickly via the kind of, you know, normal law enforcement procedures. So 
you know, if you're going to do this, you got to pay for the lab work and you have to pay for the genealogy. So you're going to be looking at $5,000 to $10,000, you know, this is expensive. And then to do the genealogy, well, if you get a good sample um, and the person is of Western European ancestry, family's been in the country for at least a couple generations, you have a very good chance of IDing them. Not always the case, though, but hmm. a very good chance because this is why. When we're looking at genetic genealogy, we're looking at databases where people have voluntarily submitted their DNA, right? This is another big place where people get messed up. They're not allowed to go into Ancestry or 23andMe and dig around, right? So you, they have to go use GEDmatch, as we talk about in the book, right, mm -hmm. or Family Tree DNA, and they have to look at people who've opted in, right, to use. I, I think Authram also has their own private database, DNA Solves. People who've opted into that. And at a very disparate rate, white people of Western European descent have uploaded hmm. their DNA voluntarily. And there are some very good societal reasons for that. It has to do with trust levels. It has to do with, you know, how people feel about law enforcement. It has to do with population in the country. It also has to do, if you look at indigenous populations, how people feel about blood quantum, you know, and, hmm, you know, right. there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there. And even if you get into the genealogical records, we have much better genealogical records on um, white people who've been in the country for a long time. So, you know, I identifying people who are classified as Hispanic Latino in this country, and I say classify because that's not an ancestral group, right? That can get really complex, too, because a lot of records are not in English. Many genealogists are not bilingual. Many the way records are kept, where they were kept, you know, a lot of genealogists don't have a strong understanding of Catholic uh, birth records. It's it really mm -hmm. complex. Yeah. But the long and short of that is, is that it's easier to identify a white person if we're looking at genealogy because white people are overrepresented in those databases. And there are a lot of genealogists who are talking about that and looking to address that. But you still have to look at the reasons why people haven't been submitting. And these are fair reasons. You know, the idea of like, how is my health information going to be used? How is this going to affect other people? So if I submit my DNA and opt in, I'm opting myself in. Who else am I opting in? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and so like people, people have to think about that. And so the long and short of it is that some cases are easier to solve than others. And this is not to say, I do want to stress that not every person of European descent is easy to solve. Julie Doe, a trans woman who was found in 1988, her family seems to have been in the country for many years. She's of European descent, but they still have, have not been able to ID her. I actually share a very small uh, Cinemorgan match with her. Editing patches here, I wanted to pop in really quick and explain to you what this is. So a Cinemorgan, which is abbreviated to CM, it's a lowercase c, capital M, is a unit of measure for the frequency of genetic recombination. This is the definition from genome.gov. So one Cinemorgan is equal to a 1% chance that two markers on a chromosome will become separated from one another due to a recombination event during meiosis, which occurs during the formation of egg and sperm cell. On average, one Cinemorgan corresponds to roughly 1 million base pairs in the human genome. And to read and quote from Lay Them to Rest on page 249, Laura Norton says, quote, all of her matches, the people who had taken the time to download their own raw DNA from other sites and upload it on GEDmatch, G-E-D-Match, ranked from highest Cinnamorgan to lowest. Those lowest numbers, the scroll was nearly endless. 
but at the top, that's where we'd be focused. Fingers crossed for a number in the hundreds, and they did. There was a 432.1 Cinemorgan, the second one was 168.2 Cinemorgan, and the third was 159. These were great numbers, and Laura Norton actually notes that the 432.1 Cinemorgan was the highest that she had seen yet. And those numbers are ultimately what helped them pinpoint exactly who Susan was. Hmm. Um, and her friend, her family is from uh, the South, North Carolina. I want to say Florida, a couple other places around there. But they have not been able to ID her, despite the DNA. I'm sorry, despite yeah, DNA Doe Project working on it for years. So it's not across the board, but you know, it is easier in general. And there's a serious disparity there, you know, mm-hmm. and it's something that people are still working to address. Um, I know my friend Donna Green, whose son Raymond Green was kidnapped in 1978 from Grady Hospital here in Atlanta. She does a lot of drives in the Black community to try and get more folks interested in submitting to GEDmatch because she feels like that might help her find Raymond. You know? Absolutely. So that's something that she talks about a lot, um, and it's one of her main focus points. But, you know, it's complex, and people have their good reasons. The rapid DNA is is interesting, and oh cost. yeah, you want to talk about the Andy machine? Sorry about that. No, 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 yeah. you're fine. I, well, because <laughs> I need I need DNA in this process explained to me like I'm in kindergarten. But I also thought it was interesting around the 200. I think it was 217 page mark. You're talking about your investigative journalist or investigative genealogist group who's really pushing for people to select opt in for investigations. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. And you've kind of answered my questions about why the public would be concerned with that. Mm-hmm. If Susan was found like she was today, would this rapid DNA be used for something like that? Or are you thinking more high profile cases? Like, so, you know, the, the so an Andy machine super expensive, but to my knowledge, an Andy that. machine only does STR. I have not okay. heard of an Andy machine doing SNPs. I've, I've never seen or heard about that. So Andy machines are generally used to get a quick profile where that used to take days or weeks. They can now do it in hours. I've seen these used at mass disasters. Mm-hmm. The only time I've used it, seen it used in a single doe case was in a case I worked on about a year and a half ago where they needed to find out if the decedent was someone's mom and they had a comparison person. But generally with an Andy machine, which is this rapid sequencing machine, you need a comparison person or a comparison sample, which is, you know, or you're just going to be getting the DNA to upload to CODIS or something. So to my knowledge, an Andy machine does not yet have the capacity to get a SNP sample, which is what you need for FIGG, unless they have somehow updated that, um, which I don't think they've done yet. I did see the ACLU was talking about rapid DNA. And they did say these machines cost as little as $30,000 and claim to take just 90 minutes. I mean, it's pretty amazing what they do. Like, But I know like t- when I was talking to the folks in Tennessee, Tennessee has one machine. You wow. kind of put that in perspective. The entire state? Yeah, yeah. And the lab that I was talking to, it was a medical examiner's office. You know, Tennessee, though, Tennessee is an extremely advanced state when it comes to forensics. Because they have the most forensic anthropologists in the country in Tennessee. Hmm. Part of that is is it's really kind of the birthplace of forensic anthropology. Um, the Body Farm is there, if you've heard of The Body mm-hmm. Farm. Oh, yeah. Western Carolina had one. You know, William Bass, one of the forefathers of forensic anthropology. It's, it's a young discipline, um, but started there. You know, it's, so there's a, a ton of forensic anthropologists down in Tennessee. So it makes sense to me they've had one. 
So it sounds expensive, but if you think about the individual cost of testing and getting DNA samples, extraction and testing, 30K is not that much. Okay. Well, that helps a little bit because that number is a little jarring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't. That doesn't surprise me at all because you're going to have to get the extraction and then you're going to have to, you know, actually process. So, nah, it doesn't surprise me. So that seems to be the common denominator even now. A lot of these departments don't have the funding or sometimes, like you say, even the technology to do. Why isn't there part of the budget allocated for for stuff like this? There is. But you have to think about, like, what's a budget, right? So here in Georgia, the GBI, which is the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, just got a huge budget increase. And it was through, I believe, the governor signed a bill to give them however many million dollars uh, for cold cases. And now, you know, different smaller departments, counties, et cetera, can apply for money to, you know, fund their cold cases. And that was huge here. And I know um, separately, uh, DeKalb County Medical Examiner got a big grant to help pay for testing in their cold cases, right? And Mm -hmm. that was huge. And the point here is that these grants um, and these budget increases, they have to come from above, you know, any single department. There's not federal funding coming in for, you know, demarcated for cold cases, unless it's for a specific project. There's been, you know, a few things marked for, um, I believe, MMIP, which were sorely needed. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need more. Um, There's been funding for uh, NamUs, but NamUs was surviving on grants for a long time. NamUs was in danger of being completely shut down. And really quick, you said MMIP, just to verify, that was missing murdered indigenous people or persons? Yeah, people, yeah. Just because um, some of the grants were for MMIWG, but some were also for MMIP. Okay. Um, And so I tend to use the more general acronym because sometimes the grants are for both. Yeah. So I think think the big grant was for MMIW, but I think there was also a grant for MMIP. Yeah. But yeah, there's been some grants and stuff, but a lot of departments have to seek out grants for this stuff. So... Like Season of Justice, which is a nonprofit I work with a lot, largely because of their family grant program. They've given family awareness grants to seven families we've worked with, which is huge. They paid for billboards, digital campaigns, signs. Um, in places like Maine, where there are no billboards, they've run newspaper ads, radio ads. They come up with everything. But they do a ton of funding of uh, DNA testing and isotopic testing and all kinds of stuff for departments who apply for grants because there's just nothing in the budget. A department gets a yearly budget for cold cases. You have one or two cases that need a lot of testing. The, the budget's gone. And a lot of times with a budget, having worked at a university at least, Let's say there's, you know, $10,000 allocated to this and 8000 to that. You're not allowed to go to the 10 and ask for four more from that and put it with the eight, at least in my experience, having mm-hmm. worked at a state level um, organization. It's not quite that simple. And I know a lot of people are like, okay, law enforcement, but do it. You know what I mean? And trust mm-hmm. me, I have plenty of my own critiques of law enforcement. <laughs> Sure. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, we we all all do. do. What I'm interested in at the end of the day is identifying people and helping families who've been ignored or have been shuffled to the back get resolution, right? Mm -hmm. I've worked with extremely dedicated law enforcement. I have dealt with apathetic law enforcement, and I have on occasion dealt with law enforcement who are openly hostile. 
And I'll tell you one thing that did not change across the board in all three of those cases, the budget. Right. And the first case with the extremely dedicated law enforcement, the one thing I saw that was different were people actively applying for grants, which told me something. Right. That, you know, I I knew uh, detectives who were writing grants um, and asking, you know, reaching out and asking folks, you know, in the city government. And a lot of these are really small places, too, writing grants, trying to get more funding. Where can that funding come from? That's above my pay grade, to be honest with you. <laughs> right. That, that's a city level. That's a state level. That's a federal level. Do I think money can be better managed and spent? Almost certainly. But it has to be done above the cold case detectives. It has to be done at an administrative level that's above them to get that money in there. Because when you consider that the testing is costing five to $10,000 a case, and you look at somewhere like Atlanta, where I'm from, how many cold cases there are. You know, there's warehouses full of cold cases. Yeah, so many. Where's that money going to come from? The few high-profile cases have gotten, that's where the money goes. Did you say that Maine didn't have any billboards? Yeah, they're against the law. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. so my friend Kristen Seavey, can I plug her, please? Go ahead. Plug anybody you want. Murder, she told, uh, you know, play on murder. She wrote because it's, yeah. She has a beautiful podcast. Um, called Murder, She Told, um, but she does a lot of advocacy work as well. But she's been working directly with, I want to see Kittery, Maine law enforcement on the case of a man named Reeves Johnson who went missing in the 1970s. And she's discovered a lot of things about this case, but she um, had to work on an awareness campaign looking for a woman who might have some information, not a suspect at all, just uh, someone he was dating, and looking for someone who probably stole this man's money, went to an ATM, covered his face, all this kind of stuff. They had to get pictures out and they don't allow billboards in Maine. So she worked with Season of Justice to come up with some really creative ways to get it out to the public, you know, all over these rural areas. But yeah, no billboards. You mean like massive on the side of the road billboards about Jesus coming back? Or do you mean like small scale? None. 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 It's against the law, she tells me, and I believe her. She's from Maine. Yes, oh, I believe zero. I believe you. I'm just, I can't wrap yeah. my <laughs> You know what the South looks like and how they love their billboards, okay? I'm yeah. just, I can't wrap my head around it. Look, I'm buying billboards all the time for cases, you know what I mean? But they have not a, not a, nary a, not a, none. It's not the only state either. I bet you've mentioned you have a Discord. I do. And so yeah. I bet if you ask your uh, club members if their state has billboards one or two of the others in, in new england will say they're not allowed either hmm. okay yeah let me it, know it, guys it ruins, the, <laughs> it, ruin, it ruins the view that's what i'm told well yeah i mean the the ones in the south are obnoxious let's be honest i mean yeah i've seen a lot <laughs> yeah so something i really thought was interesting i mean i'm gonna keep i sound like a broken record this part was interesting this part was interesting oh, no kidding if, if you were saying one part i thought was really boring i would be no, sad so none I'll take of interesting. this none of this was boring i learned so much but the ancestral input kind of tying back into the genealogy and, and genetic yeah. aspect of this is you said some of these conversations are happening in the forensic anthropology world as we speak and the question seems to be should ancestry be included in the biological profile <laughs> again i'm having a hard time kind of understanding because I feel like yes yeah it's it's an interesting conversation to have because it's one of those things where like obviously like I'm not the expert right so I talked to a lot of different experts about it and just for your listeners of course the biological profile is kind of a list of ways to identify people so it would be age, ancestry, another word for ancestry is race. So cops would put race, but anthropologists will say ancestry, or they also will say 
population affinity group or just affinity group, stature, and sex. And they know that even the term sex is kind of loaded, Mm -hmm. but they deal with sex just in terms of like what biology shows. And then they also look for anything that indicates gender as well, especially if it might conflict with what the body shows as essential biological sex. So they can really try and figure out if someone perhaps was gender nonconforming or trans so they can note that. Right. Right. Because it really gets complex there. How someone's what someone's bones say don't necessarily tell us much about how they presented in life. (laughs) That's kind of absolutely a really important lesson that a lot of the younger anthropologists are trying to get across to people. And the thing is this, right? Like, I am not qualified to say whether or not ancestry should be part of the biological profile. But one thing I know is, is that cops want that information from an anthropologist because they want to get information out to the public, you know? So if skeletal remains are found, they want to know age, stature, sex, and ancestry. So they can say uh, 20 to 40-year-old black male between the height of 5'7 and 6 feet tall was found. And they want that not only so they can begin to look through their missing persons reports, but so they can get tips from, you know, people out in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And what anthropologists are trying to point out about ancestry first, I know you also want to talk a little about sex, but what they want to point out about ancestry is that it can't always be quite that simple because while there are some pretty clear skeletal markers that can hint toward ancestry, there are also some that are not so clear, especially because we live in a society where people have all kinds of ancestry compositions. And I mentioned earlier, you heard me mention that Hispanic or Latino is not a race. Mm -hmm. Hispanic, especially, you know, that's a language group. But, you know, if we say someone's Latino, what do we really mean? The example I use in my book, if someone's from the Dominican Republic, right, and we say they're Dominican, is that a race? It's not. We could mean that they have, you know, it's it's an identity, right? It's a nationality. But in terms of ancestry group, that person could be of European ancestry, mm-hmm. African ancestry, indigenous ancestry, any combination thereof, right? And if you look at their skeletal remains, you could see one, two, or three of those things expressed in their skeletal remains, Right. So maybe their skeletal remains look, you know, primarily of African ancestry. But if you put out something that just says, you know, black male found the thing that my friend Dr. Jesse Goliath just asks us to consider is how do their family and friends identify them and think about them? Right. You know, so do they think of themselves as, you know, um, Latino, for instance? Right. Think of themselves as Afro-Latino. Right. So there's like there's the idea of like thinking about people in context and place, trying to describe people as fully as possible is Mm -hmm. what a lot of the younger anthropologists are trying to do. Recognizing that when they're doing measurements of bones, largely in the cranium, um, hopefully you have a whole skull, is that. Some of these are limited because what they have on file is, like many things, 
based on a limited set, and it leans heavily European, right, Mm -hmm. that you stop and think about, okay, this person, you know, looks European, but they could also fall into this, this, and this group. So I'm going to give all this information to the cops. So when they describe this person, maybe they'll describe them a little more fully, and that will help people who see this have a better chance of possibly recognizing them. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Maybe I'll think about where I live. Who lives here? Is is there a very large population of a certain group of people from a certain area that's immigrated here? Do they have, you know, how do they ID? You know, like maybe I'll think about that when I'm phrasing my bulletin, you know. Maybe I want to mention that someone is, you know, he could be, you know, um, you know, black, Afro, Latino, you know, maybe I'll say mm-hmm. it that way. Or a lot of times people will put black and black Hispanic. You know, that's what the cops usually say. But just trying to think about what language to use. Um, a lot of sometimes they'll just simply put multiracial. But a lot of people don't ID as multiracial. That's another that's thing. That's so ambiguous. Yeah. And a lot of times um, indigenous people will be classified as Asian, mm. particularly people who are indigenous to the north, Canada um, and, you know, Alaska right. in particular. So just thinking about, and I don't have the easy answers for this, but like a lot of younger anthropologists especially are thinking about where people are found and how to how to more carefully write things out, right? And trying to describe things as fully as possible. And there's also the argument that leaving it off is just better and saying young woman found 24 to 40 years old, 5'7 to 5'11 to try and get as much in as possible, as many people calling in as possible. Right. Yeah. And I don't have the answer to that. But I do think that the idea of supplying as much information as possible and thinking hard about context, I can't see what's wrong with that. So that was one thing I wrote about a lot in the book to try and capture when a scientist is also, you know, a forensic anthropologist, they're an anthropologist, Mm -hmm. someone who studies people and tries to understand people. And I think Jesse Goliath, who I interviewed there, like he wants us to remember that. We're not just studying bones. We're trying to understand people when they were alive. And that's how we identify them, not just by staring at their remains, you know? And this this perfectly goes into the Red Graves. And I really wanted to bring them up and praise them on the Transdo Task Force, you know, asking how, how would I be identified if my body was found? You and uh, Amy hired them to assist in, in Ina's or Susan's genetic genealogy. Did you know going into this process, this part, this what would be the final stage? Did you know that hiring them, this would be it? This would this would be the, the answers. This would give you the answers. I knew that if the DNA profile was good, I knew they'd be able to solve the case. I mean, this was assuming that we didn't get a match off the art, right? Mm-hmm. Or that something that was found in her skeletal analysis um, or her teeth didn't ID her. But I knew that if we got to the stage of the DNA processing and when they got that information, I knew that ID here, yes, they're extremely talented. And how exactly do you think we can adjust our thinking around this topic and be more mindful in the identification process? First off, I would encourage people to visit the Transdo Task Force's website. Dr. Anthony Redgrave, he got his doctorate after the book. Um, It's in the acknowledgments, if you see, Mm -hmm. because I didn't get to include it in the book. I was like, now a doctor. But, you know, a big focus of his work is on education. And their website does devote a lot of effort and time to thinking about how do we better look for and think about how we ID people. Um, 
he and Victor Veltstra and Lee as well taught me pretty early on how to flag cases for them. When I was just doing my regular work, if I came upon a case that could, you know, be a potential Transdo task force case, some of it had to do with the language um, that law enforcement would use. And mm-hmm. a lot of it had to do with, for instance, language that was actually less descriptive and less helpful than you'd normally see. So if you find a woman who is assumed to be cisgender unidentified, um, there would oftentimes be a really really detailed accounting of her clothing listed. Sure. Right? Yeah. And her hair, height, everything else. But if they, uh, sometimes if I found someone who was an unidentified person who was listed as male by the reporting officers, they would say something like, you know, male found with women's clothing. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, explain to me how that's helpful. Right. How is that going to help anyone identify their missing loved one? If this was indeed trans woman. You know, we don't have enough detail to know, but I don't know what the clothing looks like. I don't know what her clothes look like. You know, if she was gender nonconforming or a trans woman, I have nothing listed there to help me match up what someone was last seen wearing. Her friends and family are not going to recognize man found with woman's clothing. You know, sometimes I'll, found, I'll find something like wig tossed to the side. What what did her wig look like? Yeah. Um, you, you know, and this is, uh, this is just a slight trigger warning, but we've even th- found things like, you know, um, man with amputated penis and then had to get a file for them to realize that someone had had uh, gender affirming surgery. Wow. So this is the really violent language. Um, and yeah. I attended actually when I was at um, the American Academy of Forensic Sciences conference in 2022, there was a big um, symposium called Queered Science that did a major focus on how anthropologists can improve their approach to trans and gender nonconforming cases teaching folks what to look for, not only when they're doing skeletal analysis, but also when they're writing reports, um, helping people look for the effect of HRT on bone, helping people look at, you know, facial feminization surgery marks, um, you know, if they're doing skeletal analysis, also helping people write out better skeletal analysis reports in general, and also helping them when they're dealing with law enforcement. Um, If they get a report like that, kind of approaching and saying, like, how can you, you know, put more detail in here so that someone can actually recognize their loved one? You know, looking at writing, you know, making some gender neutral options mm-hmm. and things like name this. You know, if you're not sure of the gender of the decedent, give us a gender neutral option. Right. You know, things like that, because we don't if, if there are some clue, context clues here that tell us that we don't know the gender of the decedent give us some gender neutral options so that we can list everything we know and make it searchable so it pops up no matter if you click male, female, or unknown. You know, unknown is normally for skeletal remains, you know, because, you know, unknown is an issue because unknown is normally for skeletal remains where enough parts aren't found for anyone to, you know, be able to make a decision. You know, so maybe you find like, you know, a few finger bones or something. Mm -hmm. But make a case pop up for everything. And just thinking about like less violence in this language, because it almost feels in some of these older reports, like law enforcement is angry at this person, Mm -hmm. at this victim. It feels violent. Yeah, it feels violent and it feels angry at this victim for being murdered and holding back information that could help us ID them. Also, the issues even in missing persons cases, and this is something Victor Veltstra talks about, and he runs LAMP, which is the missing persons arm of Transdo Task Force, of unintentionally or intentionally 
outing missing persons, you know, who may not necessarily want to be outed, even in terms of using gendered language to describe them and the online abuse that follows even when you're trying to share their posters. So just really like more education for law enforcement, for nonprofits, for databases as we approach these issues. Because this is a younger generation of scientists, you know, who a huge symposium of grad students and young scientists who are working on this, who um, many of whom are trans um, Mm -hmm. and non-binary, who are approaching this in their own work um, and are setting new standards and are changing the way that they create forums and, you know, are asking directly for law enforcement to adjust how they are filling things out. But it's also got to be a willingness to drop the template approach, I think, to unidentified and missing persons cases in some ways and allow for more nuance, even though it's a little less convenient because it's ultimately going to help us ID more people. I do want to circle back to you you writing this book. I think mm-hmm. something you did so well is the inclusion of yourself. And there seems to be this discrepancy, I guess you could say, when it comes to writing true crime books and the involvement of the author. I thought this was done perfectly, to be very, you know, to be honest. I, I thought this was done great. How do you tiptoe those lines and make sure that the focus is still on the object of the book and, and on Ina and on the cold cases and, and, and kind of going into the true crime ethic side of things. First off, no one's ever happy. Um, so you're either it's either too much or not enough. I, you know, I believe reviews are for readers strongly. So I haven't read a single review of my book. Really? Uh, my, oh, no, it's not my business. <laughs> Okay. You know, I mean, there's a few that have been like, you know, the big magazines or something that like the publisher sends you. So you mm-hmm. can't really avoid it. You know what I mean? But people are always going to say too much of you, not enough of you, too much science, not enough science. And my, here, my my take on it kind of and this 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 disconnect, I promise. But my take on it is like, OK, teaching evaluations, I have to read those, right? Because I have to keep teaching podcast reviews. I read those sometimes because the podcast is continuing. But the book's done. I can't fix it now. Right. It's over. Mm-hmm. So it's out there. But people all have different things they want from something. Some people believe that a true crime book where the author is an active participant needs to have very little of the author in it. Some people want a lot of the author in it. Some people have a particular amount they want in there, somewhere in the middle. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I will tell you that editors strongly believe you need to have a good bit of yourself in there to create a character version of yourself that the audience can connect to because they need someone to go through the book with, right? Sure. If you are an active participant in the case in some ways. That is hard for me. I don't like to talk about myself. I'm an extremely private person, extremely private person. One thing that I don't think a lot of people picked up on is you don't even find out my family's names. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I don't tell you anything about my life at all, really. You know more about the fact that I am really loyal to Delta than you do. I am a big fan of Delta. You know, then what What kind of music do I like? What kind of food do I eat besides a lot of beef jerky? You know, hopes, fears, dreams, who right. my best friends are, you know, what I like to do. You know, not, people, you don't know anything about me, really. And I like it that way. Because if, I mean, if I, somebody asked me what my favorite color was, I would say, why do you want to know? It's unfair <laughs> of me, but I am um, a Scorpio. <gasps> me too. When's your birthday? 
Um, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you off interview. Okay. I'll tell you off interview, but I will tell you that I'm a double Scorpio. I'll tell you now. Just cut it out. Okay. Yeah, anyway, cut all that thank out. You. <laughs> anyway, you're welcome. I know so yeah. much about you now. Sorry, we had to, ta- we had to take a, qu- a quick break to share our secret birthdays because <laughs> we don't like to tell anybody anything. But I don't I don't really don't like to talk about myself. Um, so there was this constant battle with my editor. She's like, talk a little more about yourself. And I'm like, but at the same time, she's right because I was literally there for everything, doing everything. And there's so much that I did that we couldn't include. Because I don't know if this is surprising to people, but research is not that exciting in real <laughs> time. Some. Okay, yeah. just some. I, I like it, but... To write about, though. Sure. Like, you know, dun-dun-dun, then I found the property deed, dun-dun-dun. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, I just got credit for solving a case with uh, Metro Nashville. Hmm. And, like, if I explain to you how I did that, you'd be like, wow, I didn't know that that could be so boring. <laughs> But it's, you would be surprised. <laughs> it's the case. So we kind of settled on, I would tell people things about me that helped either illustrate something about science or directly related to the case. And I would allow my sense of humor to come through a little for levity. And that's kind of mm-hmm. where we landed. And, you know, there's some people, you and I were talking about this before the interview, that I think tell you a lot about themselves, but I think it works beautifully. Michelle McNamara is a good example because I think the through line of her book, the through line of my book is the search for Ina. And then the alternate side of that is breaking down forensic science because my passion is helping lay people understand forensic science because I'm a lay person mm-hmm. so that more cases get solved. That's my passion. For Michelle McNamara, her passion and obsession was finding the Golden State Killer. And the through line is her personal search because she has no reason to be looking except for her obsession. So she has to show you why. She has to give you her engine, right? Mm -hmm. So she has to tell you enough about her for that engine to run and to have fire. She has to show you her life. You know, she... It's kind of circling. She has everything she wants. So why is this driving her? Why why does she still feel this need to do this? She's happy. She's married. She's got a daughter. And yet, and it functions so well and so beautifully. And like I told you before we got on, you know, someone like Anne Rule, I mean, she could have written a whole book just about her and Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. But instead, you know, she tells you relatively little about herself and Ted Bundy in the book. And it really focuses much more on him and his crimes. She really held herself back because I think she's most comfortable in that position as the observer. And I think all three choices are very valid choices. For me, I was already pushed past my comfort level to share the little that I did. You know, and some people thought it was too much. Um, I know because they emailed me. Oh, good. That's helpful. I don't some people have have spare time. And some people told me um, they wished that they had been, you know, gotten more. Those were the more polite people who said they really liked the book. You know, and so I think that it's, I don't think there's one place of balance. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I mean, my only caution, I guess, would be, and this is just from my writing teacher perspective, making a crime that you have no connection to about yourself. You know what I mean? Right. A- about you and not about the people it affected. And I think McNamara did a really good job of not doing that, you know, so mm-hmm. of someone who wrote a lot about her life, but I don't think she overshadowed the victims at all. 
you know. Absolutely. So, so I, that's why I wanted to make sure I put that in because I said she wrote about herself a good bit, but I felt like it really added depth to her work. So I think that would be my only caution. Did that answer your question? It did. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if I have the perfect formula, except that, I mean, I know I now know I really don't like to write about myself. I, I, but I just really loved that from the get-go, when you, when you were introduced to Ina, immediately your thoughts are kind of spread throughout the book of your, like, you know, this was a person. Like, the, we, we got to humanize this. It's not just a skull. And Amy had a great line, too, that you included in the book. You gingerly lifted Ina from the box. Never, like, just the skull, the the part. And she told me that the first thing she taught new students in her lab was that the bones they handled didn't exist in a vacuum as objects of devoid connection. She wanted them to think hard about the human half of the equation when it came to remains and act accordingly. And you were also asking the Redgraves about NDAs, you know, like how this is such sensitive information. How can you trust that a person is going to take care of you as well as the team of people that you have surrounded yourself with? do you know so i just i really loved and respected how, how you have found the best balance i guess when it comes to writing nonfiction and true crime nonfiction. Yeah. when it comes to people i think part of it is is because i began from the very top working with families right mm-hmm. the families i work with are waiting to find out what happened whether their loved one was murdered or was missing and i did that for two years before i started working on doe cases So when I started working on doe cases, I guess from the jump, I understood this was someone, someone, Mm -hmm. someone's family member. And it was very easy for me to picture the families that I work with waiting to hear about this person. So as soon as we began working on Ina's case, it was really easy for me to visualize the people waiting on the other end, waiting to hear about their sister or their mother or their daughter. And so that connection, that clarity was something I wanted to get across to the audience. Because I think empathy is something we talk about a lot in true crime. But people think saying, you know, here are a couple facts about the victim. They were beautiful. They were kind. They like to swim or whatever, right? Like, and that covers it. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Because you can't capture a human life. Nobody can capture all of a human life. We can't. We don't even know what our own human lives are about, you know? (laughs) How can we? But understanding that there's somebody out there with a hole in them waiting for this person, you have to keep that in mind when you're working. I mean, scientists have to put that away sometimes or they can't do their jobs. My cousin's a pathologist. And she's seen some of the worst things you can see. Mm -hmm. And she has to put it away sometimes so she can help those people. If she sits there and keeps in mind the entire time that she's working on a child, she's not going to be able to help that child. But her basic respect for human life is what drives her, right? And so I think that that's what I try to keep to the forefront for my audience, whether it's in a podcast or in a book, is that we write about crime and we think about crime and we cover crime because ultimately death is part of human life. And I think that a lot of people say they're fascinated by crime because they want to be safe. I hear that a lot from people is that they're trying to learn to be safe. I don't really know if that's true, though, because I think most of us who read about crime and write about crime and think about crime are very safe people already. And I wonder if it's really about trying to understand part of the human experience. 
I spent the morning with a crime victim's mother. What she said to me didn't teach me how to be safe, but it did teach me about more about being a human being. And I think ultimately that is the important part for me. If you really want to talk about empathy and if you really want to talk about what we can learn from all of this is helping people. And whether we're helping them when they're alive or when they're dead is what we can learn from crime, I think. If you really want to learn a new kind of empathy, it's not feeling sorry for the victim because they were beautiful, unkind, and then they died. It's feeling pain and empathy for them because they're a victim, but also for their families and understanding that more should be done before their death and after their death than for all people. We've, we've all seen true crime kind of take the, I mean, we were talking about that too. There's cons. There's cons now for true crime. There's there's so many, I mean, there's a new documentary coming out every week. It's just, you know, it's it's become so embedded in our culture. And I'm sure there's psychology behind it. And I'm sure there's, you know, so many things we could dig into, you know, wanting the wanting to feel safe, the wanting to be aware, the learning, the understanding, the, the psychology of it or whatever. But it's, it, it, you know, it, sure, fascinating to an extent. We don't like to think that people could do something like this, like they did to, you know, Susan. It is similar to, I guess, the, uh, the, the serial killer discussion we were having earlier, just becomes so normal in discussions now. And, and so repetitive. Everybody knows about true crime. Everybody's kept up in the news about something, you know. And I don't want people to feel bad or ashamed about being interested in true crime. I do want to really note that. Because I think that listening to someone like me who can be a huge downer is that people will be like, wow, am I crappy? No, you're not crappy at all. Being interested in true crime is trying to understand the human experience. That's really mm -hmm. what I'm trying to get across. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because, because we're trying to understand the good and bad of what happens to people. It's just like being interested in history. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like, I mean, I spent like part of uh, the pandemic reading about plagues. Because I wanted Love to understand, it. you know, that was a bit of a downer, too. But I was trying to understand when these mass events happen, like, how do people react, right? So I think we read an, about crime and listen to podcasts about crime and watch documentaries about crime to try and understand the human experience so we can go beyond our own experience. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think that the best case scenario is that we truly do develop more empathy and that may be in our own small way we try to help. And if you don't mind me saying, there are such simple ways that people can help, mm -hmm. you know. So if you read this book and you cry, and I do love to make people cry, maybe <laughs> it moves it. you, you to thank you, you know, cry. Please cry, everyone. Maybe it moves you to share a missing person's poster where maybe you would have passed it over before or an unidentified person's poster because those are even harder to get attention for. If you live in an area, have you ever looked to see what unidentified person's cases are in your area? You can make a poster and put it on your Instagram or you can make a TikTok about a case. Simply just one that needs a little more attention. You know, it doesn't have to be like this lurid explanation of it. You can call your local news station around the anniversary of a case that hasn't gotten much coverage and ask them to cover it. This is what I mean about taking interest and turning it into empathy as well. And I would love to see people who have an interest in true crime do this because it adds like something actionable to your need to understand the world. And I'm trying to remember exactly what part got me, but it definitely was toward the end once you guys were starting the press conference. And I was I 
It was late. Okay, I was I was already well, her, in a vulnerable. It's her sisters. <laughs> I know. You know, like when I met them at the Cracker Barrel, and then when I was talking to her daughter about her dream, and her like, I started crying when I was doing the interview with Crystal, um, her daughter, and her mom. I was crying, crying silently in my booth that I'm in with you right now. Yeah. And her mom was like, you know, I can't leave this forest. Her mom's like, you know, I can't leave this forest. I live here now. That is why that part gave yeah. me goosebumps. And I still I talked to her daughter yesterday, actually. So but, so what was it like doing all this research and time spending all this time trying to put a, a, a name and a face to what you were working with and then meeting the family? Like, try it if you can encompass how that felt. So it's interesting because, like I said, I work with families a lot on the front end. Right. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I was working with the family on the back end and it's become the front end again. So. I was on the second call with them. The first call was, of course, investigators informing them. That's a private call. But they wanted to speak with us about, you know, the process that we went through and answer some questions. And Amy and I were on that call with um, her sisters. It was just, you know, overwhelming, incredibly emotional and overwhelming. Um, they were in shock. They'd done some Googling, so they got had gotten some of the, you know, really... Oh, the details. preliminaries. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, they'd gotten, you know, details just from, you know, the basic news stuff. Um, they'd seen the original art. They were really confused by it. I actually found out later that one family member had actually seen the art and passed it over thinking it could be oh, her. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, the original art. Not Carl's art, but the original art. Oh, okay. Um, you know, because they'd been looking for years for her. Um, they just couldn't do anything because there was no open report. And when I finally met them, um, they, you know, were angry that her case had been closed because they felt like she could have been found so much earlier. Because if, if there had been, you know, they were just living in Indiana, you know, as news travels, it's likely they could have seen a news report with enough detail. You know, if it had been, not been decapitated head found, how about, you know, young red-haired woman found mm -hmm. you know what it means anything red-haired they they if they'd seen the phrase red hair it would have cued them absolutely you know but that's how news headlines are written they just had questions and i tried to answer them um but after that and then after the press conference i spent months interviewing everybody and uh working especially with Anne marie and also mm -hmm. with crystal to just work on trying to get more answers. And it's just been an incredibly emotional experience. Um, I'm particularly close to Crystal and to Anne-Marie. You know, the whole point is that it's not done, right? So that's Absolutely. why we started working with Season of Justice to get a billboard up. And the billboards ran through Clarksville. Right when the book came out, we tried to time it so people would notice. We plastered Clarksville with billboards. And my friends at the Navigating Advocacy podcast, speaking of conventions, they have a convention coming in 2025 that's it's called Advocacy Con. That's all about teaching advocacy. Um, mm. Families are going to be there. It's going to be a really cool thing, I think. Oh, yeah, that sounds but great. But they sent, yeah, they sent out flyers to everyone in Iona, Illinois, every single address uh, <laughs> since there's only like two billboards there. So you couldn't well, get a billboard. Yeah, yeah. They did that. Um, Amy and I have offered a $10,000 reward in the case that doesn't expire, you know, for any information leading to an arrest and Sue's homicide. So that's just kind of the stuff we've been working on because what Sue's family wants is, okay, she's been ID'd, but they want to know what happened. Right. So we're committed to trying to help them figure that out. It's, it's not over. It's just part one. 
Yeah, that's the deal. That's what I meant when I said you think that the puzzle pieces click in and then you realize that's great for TV, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's messy and it's real and it keeps going. You know, they have some answers and now they want more. For sure. And it's it's, it's spanning three states for right now. There's there's questions that need that need answers in at least three different places. You know, Alabama, Tennessee, and maybe even Illinois and Indiana. Like it's just it's so spread out. Oh Lord, yeah, four, four, yeah, yeah. Alabama remains a big question mark for me, man. Yeah, that one—that's the most unsettling part. I mean, there's a lot of unsettling things about this book, but that that one really, really bothered me. To you know, just so confused. What what was the what was what was said that just made them think that they were good? You know, like what, what what was said, what was seen. Like I just, I have so many questions about it. Would that I could get my hands on that file, but um, yeah, Clarksville. Let me say this in a way that's polite. Clarksville was uninterested in speaking to me for my projects. Mm. So, so I don't know. Interesting. There's a really great moment at the end, of, towards the end of the book with your son, where you're rounding out your thoughts at the end of the book and your son ran up to you. I think you guys were at like a play park or something. And he said, you know, like, I made a friend. And you're like, what's his name? And he's like, I don't know. Thanks, mom. And just like <laughs> ran away. But it was just like this, such a minuscule moment in the in in the midst of all this time and research done with trying to identify people. And you were like, I think names do really matter. Yeah, it was funny because it happened right when I was um in the middle of getting information, like a big case had just broken, um, Lady of the Dunes. Oh, and yeah. I was like, because I didn't know if it was one of his little friends from his old school's friends. And he was like, I don't know. And I was like, well, okay. Interesting. <laughs> names, 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 names. I want to ask you about updates, stuff we were discovering along the way in the book. There was one case in particular that I thought was interesting that you kind of discovered through the process of of Ina, which was a 1995 John Doe who was found in a sleeping bag. There are mentions of a Dardeen family that also shook Ina and Mary, the mummified person. A lot of people were asking me about updates on Mary and kind of where that was. So I wish I had better news. Unfortunately, the amateur scientist, I hope you're all imagining the quotation marks I'm putting around that, whatever resin he and it was definitely he okay treated her with has made it so far impossible to do any testing on her mm-hmm. bones so so far no testing uh, has been possible we're still hoping the coating was really damaging mm. um so we're still hoping that maybe some records are going to be dug up but the scientific route so far has not been good which is really upsetting yeah, um, obvious for obvious reasons. The school's still hopeful. I mean, they have money in reserve to pay for it. They really, really want to see her returned, right, to where she should be. But we just haven't been able to get any any idea of provenance so far. The Dardeen family, um, there are no updates in their case. It remains a cold case. I don't think that this case has been actively pursued, to my knowledge. Um, I wish that it would be. I did a full podcast episode that was a bonus for the book for people that bought it early that really dug into it more. That was like a bonus thing that came with the book where I really got more into the case. Um, And it's a really, really, really sad case. It's terrible. Um, Mm -hmm. And I really hope at some point they get some answers there. I don't believe the man who confessed to the crime 
personally um, is responsible for the crime. Oh, okay. Uh, Interesting. So I, it just, you know, the guy who's a serial killer, I don't believe Tommy uh, Linsell's. Mm. There's too many discrepancies in terms of what he said. Um, and he also did falsely confess to a number of crimes as well. So it also is worth noting that Keith Jardine's mother does not believe that he is the killer either. That's, you know, a concern as well. And, you know, it's the case remains open to this mm-hmm. day. In terms of the Jefferson County John Doe, who was discovered in the sleeping bag, we're in a holding pattern on that, waiting for more evidence to be located. Okay. This book sparked an interest in a lot of people for wanting to do more within their community, within helping solve some does in their free time. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to someone wanting to get into this line of work, specifically, I guess, on the, the reporting side of it and making sure that they are doing it correctly? How close do you need to be with the families, with law enforcement and, and working with those communities, especially the people that we're asking do live in larger cities where there seems to be mm-hmm. a larger number of doe cases. So I guess the two sides of this too, I guess, is is a, the respectful uh, journalistic approach, but also the podcasting and and the and the storytelling part of it. Well, I mean, I can only speak for myself, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. So I have kind of a unique background in that I was an um, academic with a lot of years under my belt, trained in research and writing. So when I got involved with law enforcement, they were willing to work with me for those reasons, right? So I had kind of an entree there. I, I really don't recommend the people who don't have any training approach families Mm, um that can be really traumatic thing to do even with the best intentions right because you have to kind of imagine if someone is interested in helping but doesn't really have you know do you do you have an idea of what questions would be a really upsetting thing to ask somebody or not you know do you have victim advocacy training do you have a background in mental health do you know what it's like to talk to somebody about the worst day of their life and then say thanks for your time and hang up. You know what I mean? You have to think about like the impact versus the intent, I think, sometimes. There's a reason I brought on a licensed professional counselor to do this. (laughs) I think that wanting to help people, you have to think about the safest, kindest, most responsible way to do that. I was already a writer and already a researcher. And so I use those skills to help. I already had a background working uh, with a lot of other um, academics. And so I started working with academics in science to try and communicate science to people. That happened to be my strengths. So what I'd like to um, sort of volley back to the audience are, what are your strengths? Mm. How can you help in the ways that you are best at doing things? Podcasting is tough. Yeah. Um, it is. It's hard. Um, it's oversaturated market, doing it responsibly and well, there's not a template. So one of my uh, best friends is Sarah Turney. Um, Some of your audience might know who she is. She is the sister of missing person Alyssa Turney. And one thing we talk about a lot is people kind of hope that there's some template out there for making ethical true crime. And if they just follow that template, they'll be doing the right thing. But life is messier than that, right? And even... With your best intentions, you are going to do a little harm because it's hard for people to talk about this stuff and it's painful. And you're going to be causing people some pain, even as you're doing some good stuff, you know, and some good work. So when people ask me what they can do to help, um, I often say, can you find, you know, an unidentified person's case in your area to advocate for? Because the thing about an unidentified person is 
An unidentified person is a missing person, but they're a missing person whose connections have been cut. A missing person has people to advocate for them usually, right? But an unidentified person doesn't make the news. They don't have a narrative, right? Nothing's happening there. Can you find one, two, three even if you're in a big city? Can you decide, I'm going to concentrate gathering as much information as I can on this case, right? I'm going to try and get these this case on Reddit. I'm going to suggest this case to podcast. I'm going to gather the research on this case to make that more likely. I'm going to reach out to the local news and ask them why they haven't featured this case. I'm mm. going to contact law enforcement. I'm going to learn how to follow FOIA. I'm going to get the information. I'm going to ask law enforcement where they are with this case. I'm going to figure out the anniversaries. If I can write, I'm going to put together a blog on it. If I am someone who's interested in reporting, I'm going to write an article, right? And I'm going to ask my local news if they're interested in publishing it. There's so much you can do, right? That is something that's responsible and helpful. You know, you can contact local organizations um, or nonprofits and ask if they'd be interested in paying for testing, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can contact law enforcement and say, this organization's interested in paying for testing in this case. Like, there's so many things you can do like that that are 100% responsible and you won't make a mistake. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And the reason that I just um, tell people to think hard before reaching out to families is if you haven't thought really hard about what if you do something that you can't take back, right? Because we all mess up in life, right? We all mess up at our jobs. Um, We all screw up. But the stakes are sometimes lower and they're sometimes higher. So if you ask the mother of a murdered child an insensitive question, and it means that she never talks to a reporter again, because I know someone this happened to, a woman who doesn't talk to reporters anymore, Mm. because a podcaster asked her a question that really wrecked her. So what are you going to do with that, you know? And, And I'm not trying to discourage anyone from wanting to help. I just want people to think about the best ways they can help right? What's your skill set? Are you the person who's really good at making posters? Are you the person who's really good at writing? Are you super good at researching? Hey, one thing I do is when I'm done researching, I give all my research to the law enforcement department, Mm. you know, because you know what they don't have? Any of the archival news ever. None of it ever. Really? (laughs) Yeah, never. Never have it. Um, And I don't just do it on just that one doe victim. I'll look up regional stuff that's related. I'll find victims who are nearby. I'll look into, like, stuff that I think is important, you know, that's tangentially related. I'll look into, you know, missing persons. I I gather it all up and I say, you know, would you be interested in this research that I've put together? And, you know, normally I'm working with them, so they're like, yeah— listeners or people in the discord could reach out and get hand this over now are they going to tell you anything about the case probably not Mm -hmm. but you know they'll take it and then you have actually helped now if someone wants to start a podcast that's a whole different you know kettle of fish um (laughs) you can absolutely start a podcast if you want to i'm not trying to stop you all i ask is that you be extremely respectful don't plagiarize anyone else's work which means don't you know, quote without saying that you're quoting. Don't paraphrase too closely. Don't over rely on one source. If you use one article for your whole podcast episode, you are still plagiarizing, even if you cite it. Be respectful of people um, and think about if if it was about someone in your family, would you be happy that someone did it? That's all I'm putting out there for that, right? Mm-hmm. But reaching out to victims' families. And contacting them is just something I ask people to be really, really careful about and think hard about before they do. Because you can't take it back once you do it. That's all. 
it's funny the the conversation of intent versus impact was in our last book discussion and, and podcast episode as well and you know i thought that that was really interesting that you said that because it felt like a really nice parallel and you also talked about reading plagues shameless plug next month we are discussing pathogenesis which is about the history of the world and eight plagues and i just got the audiobook for it and i'm Ooh. incredibly excited to read it I yeah i'm read chatting that. With, now i want to read it it sounds i'm so excited to chat uh with jonathan kennedy in march he the author of it i i haven't read it either and i'm 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 stoked. So, and it, and something interesting too that also kind of parallels Megan Rosenblum, who we talked about last. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in one of your bios, I might have taken it from your website. It mentioned that you're moving into fiction. Yeah. Going back to fiction is a better way to phrase that. Yeah, um, I am slowly working on my novel. All this work that I get paid to do is uh, getting in the way. But yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm working slowly on a novel. It's a supernatural thriller supernatural ish like supernatural light supernatural elements mm-hmm. uh set in the uh, foothills of appalachia in georgia with a forensic forensic uh theme so do you want my credit card information now or <laughs> <laughs> i wish i could yeah if i can ever finish it you know like <laughs> let's if i can get this thing done i mean i got too much to do um but yeah so I'm hoping that, you know, it's it's the book I really want to write, man. It's all up in my head. I just need to, mm-hmm. the S key's not working that well on my laptop. It's really slowing me down. No, it keeps okay. sticking. Yeah, I got it, I got it. Yeah, so, but yeah, eventually. So, but yeah. any more nonfiction in the future, you think? Any other books similar to this with helping solve dough cases or, or shining light on them? Anything like that? Or I don't know. Um, I spend so much time working on dough cases. That I don't know uh, if I'm going to write another book about dough cases, um, but I'm certainly going to keep working on them. If your audience is interested, my podcast, uh, The Fall Line, we just did 22 dough cases uh, from Nashville in collaboration with Nashville PD. Wow. Uh, We've covered a lot of dough cases in the past as well. Um, I'm about to, uh, we're in the middle of releasing a season um, right now called Missing Mothers, where there's two missing person cases, and then one is tied in directly with a doe case, 1978 doe case. So there is a plethora of doe cases Mm -hmm. um, on the fall line as well. All I I tell people is, you know, don't worry, the audio gets better. Um, And I get much better at at, um, narrating, too. So, Well, I personally, I I think the fall line is great. Personally, though, one strange thing has my heart. Oh, well, that's my that's my baby. I love one um, strange thing. That's where I go to have some fun. Mm-hmm. Well, I like weird stuff. I mean, I like the unexplained. Me too. So that's definitely. I just my wrote one about Hogzilla, so uh, it, that should be out uh, very soon. Hogzilla. Hell yeah! I don't know what that is. That sounds awesome, though. I'm ready. It's a it's a feral hog. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to today's episode with Laura Norton and her book, Lay Them to Rest. If you would like to join the Morbidly Curious Book Club, you can do so today. The link will be in the description of whatever podcast platform you are listening on. The Zoom book club discussion of Lay Them to Rest will be February 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. If you are listening to this on a later date or you happen to miss the Zoom meeting, no worries. I do upload the video onto my YouTube page and that link will be in the description below as well. Stay safe out there, stay curious, and make sure you make an appointment with your dentist.